In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 22. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Last week, you'll recall I mentioned how we were having problems with the audio on the show. I still don't know how it's connected to the storage unit, Joanna's Whispering Pages bookstore, or anything else for that matter. But things have gotten even stranger. Last Wednesday, September 1st, members of the No Sleep team started reporting a strange occurrence with their audio. This happened across various time zones around the globe, and the bizarre audio stuff only happened when they played audio files they've created for the podcast. I managed to record some of the audio from some of the team who were able to record it as it happened due to the fact that the strange audio seemed to to loop for about 15 minutes. Separately, the audio files sound like gibberish. That is, until I layered the audio files together. When I did, it sounded like... Well, like this. Some stories shouldn't be told. Hear what I mean? Bizarre. Even worse, ever since that very same day, I haven't heard anything from Joanna. She's gone completely silent. That can't be a good sign. I'm getting really worried for her, especially now that the scream has seemingly happened. I'm at a loss to explain all of this. My head feels like I'm having a bad trip that's bending how I perceive reality. And I don't do drugs much. Certainly not experimental, psychedelic, hallucinogenic drugs that would evoke such mind-warping realities. And definitely not after experiencing something which was conveyed to me by a person named Derek Walker. I didn't ask where he got this story, but thanks to Dan Zapula, Kyle Akers, Ellie Hirschman, Atticus Jackson, Matthew Bradford, and Jeff Clement, we can all find out what happened. I don't know. No matter how strange things get with me, they're not as bad as what happened during the basement sessions. I met 12-year-old Bradford only an hour ago. Now, 
His head is smashed in, and he's lying in a pool of blood in the middle of my basement floor. The police will be here any minute to arrest me, no doubt. They'll gather testimony from the other three boys that were here tonight, then from the nearly 100 other boys that have visited my basement over the past 17 years. Alright, writing that down makes me sound like a pervert, but I'm not a pervert. Let's get that out there. This is my final confession. It all started in the year 2002. I had just graduated with a master's in psychology and was working at Top Hat Video to pay the bills while pursuing research on psychedelic therapy on the side. While exiting the local Cinemark after seeing M. Night Shyamalan's signs on opening night, I noticed a group of four boys gathered around the ticket booth, one of whom I recognized as a neighborhood kid, Jimmy McConkie. They had just learned that the 11.15pm showing was sold out, and were trying to figure out whose mom could pick them up. Jimmy saw me and called out. Hey Marcus, how's it going? Jimmy, what's going on? Signs is sold out. Damn, sorry man, I just saw it. His face lit up and his friends gathered around. Well, how was it? It was horrifying. So good. Oh man, well we'll have to try tomorrow. His friends nodded in affirmation. Then I started thinking. My latest research had been on the use of psychedelics to treat early childhood trauma. In theory, the drugs would help access a higher plane of existence, which, with the guidance of a licensed professional, could be used to gain a deeper understanding of the trauma. Of course, much of what I was studying back then is almost common knowledge in progressive psychiatric circles today. LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin, as found in mushrooms, are used regularly in underground guided therapy sessions nowadays. But back then, no way. In the 1960s or 70s, sure. Early 2000s, no. On a whim, I invited the boys over to my house. I told them I'd give them a preview of signs without spoiling too much. Since the kids still didn't have a ride home, they accepted my invitation. They packed into my Subaru Outback and I took them to my home. For all the talk about stranger danger, these 12-year-olds were much too confident coming with me. Though, again, I had no ill intent. I never did at any point. It sounds so creepy writing it down like this, but a handful of willing kids was exactly what I needed to test my methods. If the combination of psychedelics and hypnosis could work for trauma, why not for fun? I served the four of them Pepsi while I got the basement ready. I set up four chairs in the middle of my unfinished basement, turned on the surround sound speakers, and got a bell from the storage room. I ground up tablets of MDMA and fed them into the dry powder inhaler. I brought the boys down and invited them to take a seat. I handed them blindfolds. I'm gonna set the scene for you. Imagine you're on a farmhouse in the middle of rural Pennsylvania. Once their blindfolds were fastened, I started the binaural beats on the speakers. You are surrounded by hundreds of acres of cornfield. After ringing the bell, I took the powder inhaler to each one and instructed them to inhale on my count. I sprayed 
the ground MDMA. One, two, three, breathe in. This will help you envision the scene a bit better. They were giddy with excitement as I walked them through the story. I could tell when the drugs kicked in because their reactions became more animated. Once I realized my power, I'll admit I embellished the details a little bit, but the boys were having the time of their lives. Although I wanted to go deeper, I stuck with the story, making sure to get their permission before veering into spoiler territory. I ended on a strong note, then let the high wear off before driving them home. The boys decided on their own volition that they'd tell their parents they saw the movie as planned and that it was fantastic. They knew it was sketchy going over to a single neighborhood man's house under the radar, so they promised each other to keep quiet. As the months went on, that same group of four boys returned a few more times, asking me to take them on some sort of adventure. Sometimes they had specific requests. I want to fly, let's do a haunted house, how about a creepy version of Disneyland, etc. Other times, they let me call the shots. The process was simple enough. I played around with drug types and dosages, along with my hypnosis techniques and music. Eventually, I had formulas for every type of occasion. As that group of four boys got older, they brought their younger brothers and other neighborhood kids as a kind of sacred rite of passage. In 2007, Jimmy graduated high school. He went on to other things, and I stayed in the same place, continuing my research. Eventually, I got a job teaching Psychology 101 at the community college. By that time, I had myself a group of about eight regulars aged 12 to 15 that would come over about once a month and allow me to take them on whatever adventure they or I wanted. Again, not a pervert. After applying blindfolds, dimming the lights, putting on music, and giving each of them a couple inhales of my special powder, I told them to imagine various scenarios. I'd give only a basic level of detail and allow their drug-infused brains to fill in the gaps. I'll admit I pushed the boundaries sometimes to see what kind of reaction I'd get. It was around the year 2015 when I made my first real breakthrough. I had a group of six boys, I think. After the regular setup, I decided to do something a little different. To the best of my recollection, here's how the session went. I want you to imagine you've arrived at an abandoned mansion in the middle of the desert. It's the biggest house you've ever seen. Very dark, very creepy. You open the rusty gate that guards the property and walk through, kicking your feet through piles of moldy leaves. You slip past what remains of the front door and walk in on a grand entrance. Double staircases, a giant crystal chandelier, granite floors. It smells of mildew and dust like it hasn't been touched in years. Cobwebs cake seemingly every corner. As you step in and take in the utter beauty of this masterpiece of a mansion, you hear something. The faint lull of a cello. Intrigued, you follow the sound, taking you down long, winding corridors to a two-story library. The shelves are stocked with books, but they are dusty and rotted, much like everything else in the house. 
The faded sun makes its way through the large stained glass windows, giving off glares of all colors. In the center of the room is a beautiful woman. She is the composite of every beautiful woman you have ever seen. Each of the boys shifted, smiles creeping on their faces. I couldn't help but smile too. That beautiful woman is the one who's playing the cello. She plays with such fervent passion. The way it reverberates through the library sends a chill down your spine as you stand there watching her play carefully with seemingly her whole body. You notice that the second floor mezzanine is beginning to fill up with people. People you know. Friends, family, acquaintances. They wear somber looks as they take their place standing above you. None of them seem to notice you standing there. Suddenly, you realize why they're there. Off to the side, behind the cellist, is an open casket. Your heart sinks as you begin to understand the situation you have walked into. You cautiously approach the mahogany casket as the cello croons in the background. You lean forward to get a closer look at the body. There, with taut white flesh, closed eyes, and caked in makeup, is your dead body. One of the boys yelped and fell out of his chair. The others snapped out of hypnosis, ripping the blindfolds off. A couple of them had tears streaming down their faces. I turned off the music and nervously watched them compose themselves in silence. There were so many emotions in the room, I couldn't get a good read on the boys. Eventually, once things relaxed a bit, one of the boys approached me. I'm gonna go home. Okay. Do you need a ride? Are you okay? The poor boy was holding back tears. Um, I'll be fine. I just... I've been an asshole to my little brother lately. I'm worried that I'll die or he'll die before I have a chance to make things right. I don't want things to end like this. You know, I want him to know that... He looked around to the other guys and saw that their emotions seemed to match his own. I want him to know that I love him. He walked upstairs, out the front door, never to be seen again. A few of the other boys expressed something similar, that there were a few people in their lives that they had been jerks to, that they had lied to, that they hadn't been nice to. They wanted to make things right. For the first time since I had begun this endeavor... I felt good about myself. It was the first time I had dared do anything meaningful with the therapy and it seemed to be effective. These boys' lives were changed for good because of this simple session. Fast forward a few years and I have had almost a hundred different boys come to do guided psychedelic therapy sessions with me. They all understood the gravity of keeping it on the down-low, a point that tended to be baked into the initial invitation. Tonight, however, I took things too far. Rather than using the therapy as a method to help the boys explore themselves, I attempted to use it as a method to learn the secrets of the universe. Just a few hours ago, a group of four boys, two of which I had hosted before, stopped by, asking if I could conduct a session. I had nothing else going on aside from a little reading and late-night solo drinking, so 
I let them in. They had just come from basketball practice. They followed me into the basement and took their seats. The two boys that had been there before, Adam and Bryson, explained the process to the two new boys, Radford and Trey. The two new boys seemed nervous, as most first-timers are, but they trusted their friends enough to proceed. I started the music, dimmed the lights, and instructed them to place the blindfolds on. I took another sip of whiskey, then walked the inhaler around, giving each boy three puffs of my special sauce. Aside from generalities, I don't usually plan these adventures too far in advance. I suppose it was the late-night reading of Lovecraft infused with alcohol and a relentless thunderstorm that led me on tonight's particular excursion. I started the session slowly, allowing about 30 minutes for the drugs to take full effect, all while occasionally ringing the bell. You find yourself in the middle of the woods one evening, the pink sky filtering through thick rows of pine trees. You walk carefully, mindfully through the woods, the soft padding of fallen pine needles cushioning your every step. The boys slouched in their chairs as they fell deeper into hypnosis. As you walk along, smelling the sweet smell of the pines, hearing the chirping crickets, you find a fallen wooden sign, half buried in the ground. You dig it out and brush it off. On it reads something quite peculiar. This way, to the end of the world, it reads. You find a tree with an old rusty nail about six feet up and determine that this must be what the sign was attached to. You continue trekking through the woods, all while keeping an eye out for whatever the end of the world might be. The further you go into the forest, the darker it gets. Pretty soon, you start to feel something. You start to internalize the gravity of the situation. Although you thought the sign was silly at first, you now believe it. You become confident that you are about to discover something groundbreaking. The chirping crickets suddenly stop. Ahead of you is a metal stairway that leads down into a wide hole, about 50 feet in diameter. You edge closer to the hole and realize that the fading daylight doesn't offer you enough to see the extent of its depth. You consider turning back, but the unwavering sense of curiosity gets the best of you, and you decide to descend the stairs. You go slowly at first, testing the load-bearing of each step carefully. After about 20 stairs, you feel safe and start descending quicker. Another hundred feet down, you happen upon a heavy metal door with rusted bolts and hinges. You push the door hard and it squeaks open, revealing a man playing basketball, alone in an empty arena. Each time the ball bounces, it echoes through the building and into the stairwell you occupy. Some of the boys sit upright, smirking. After making a long three, the man grips the basketball and turns slowly to face you. He walks to you very carefully. As he gets closer, you realize the man is huge. The boys grip their seats. Once he's about 50 feet away, you recognize him. It's LeBron James. The boys laugh in excitement, 
One of them stands up and pumps his fist. I can't help but chuckle to myself at my spontaneity. LeBron James is probably the only current NBA player I can name. When he gets to the doorway, standing right in front of you, a serious look passes on his face, and he begins to speak. I clear my throat and drop my voice. I know that you think you're just having a fun time going on a psychedelic adventure, but you have to understand something, he says. This journey is important, very important. What you are doing has the potential to unlock all the mysteries of the earth. You just have to keep going. Promise me, you'll keep going. One of the boys swallows hard. All of them nod in agreement. Then, the ball he's holding turns to fire. He dribbles it a few times and spins it on his finger, apparently unfazed. He hands you the ball and you hold it with both hands. The flames dance around the ball without burning you. This will help light your path, he says, then slams the door. LeBron James is gone. You continue down the stairwell, your path lit by the flaming basketball. After another hour of descending the stairs, you reach a second door. This one is equally heavy and rusty as the first. As you push it open, you hear the sound of waves crashing. You lean your shoulder into the door, as you did with the first one, and shove it open. Sand spills onto your feet. You look upon a beautiful, endless beach of white sand, bordered by blue, crashing waves on one side and lush jungle vegetation on the other. A cool, saltwater mist touches your skin. When you hear the ding of the bell, the sun will disappear. One, two, three. I dinged the bell and waited for a moment. A couple of the boys leaned forward. You can still hear the waves crashing and feel the ocean mist, but the world is pitch black. No stars, no moon. You can only see the few feet of sand in front of you as illuminated by the flaming basketball. As you focus on the sound, you hear someone walking toward you. When I count to three and ding the bell, the sun will reappear and your mother will be standing there. One, two, three. I dinged the bell again. The boys smiled nervously. This woman brought you into the world. She fed you, clothed you, changed your diapers. Your mother sacrificed so much for you. You feel this. In this moment, you internalize an undying gratitude for your mother. You would do absolutely anything for her. You'd take a bullet for her or jump in front of a bus. Absolutely anything. I wait for a moment, allowing my words to marinate. Your mom stands in the sand about 50 feet back looking at you with a smile. She invites you in, but you can't move. You're stuck in the stairwell. As soon as you realize this, you see someone else approach. A man dressed head to toe in black emerges from the jungle with a machete. His identity is concealed by a black leather mask. 
Your mom continues to smile, unaware of the man in black approaching. You try to call out, but you can't speak. You wave your hands furiously until she pays attention. A look of fear passes over her. As she turns around to confront her attacker, the man hits her over the head, knocking her unconscious. You notice for the first time that there is a large cage in the sand behind the attacker. The man drags your unconscious mother into the cage, slams the door, and locks it. You look at her limp body sprawled out on the metal floor of the cage and are filled with rage. You try to move again, but you can't. You try to scream, but you can't. The man in black notices you and approaches. When he's standing right in front of you, he dangles the key to the cage and laughs a deep, ugly chuckle. He then throws the key out of the door, over your head. You hear it clank down the staircase, disappearing far, far below you into the void, revealing a horrific, warped face with gaping, bloody holes where his eyes should be. He speaks again. One more door. The door slams shut, booming into the stairwell. One of the boys shakes his head furiously. The others look angry. It's working, I thought. As you continue descending the stairs, lit by the flaming basketball, you feel brave and confident, like you can confront whatever lies in the third and final door. You can get the keys to the cage, you can save your mother, and you can find the secrets to the end of the world. You just have to keep going. You have to be... The thunder cracked loud enough to make me jump and snap the boys out of hypnosis. They ripped their blindfolds off and stumbled to their feet, breathing heavily. Oh my god, that was intense. You don't want to keep going? Man, that was enough for one night. Great trip, though. I loved meeting LeBron James. That felt so real. Didn't that feel real? The boys nodded in agreement. Damn lightning woke you guys up. Trey picked up his hat. Well, thanks for having us over, Mr. Marcus. As they started up the stairs, I noticed that not all of them had snapped out of the hypnosis. Bradford sat still, blindfold on, still gripping his chair. Should I wake him? This was Bradford's first session, and I didn't want him to freak out when he awoke. You guys go ahead. I'll wait for Bradford to wake up. Bryson and Trey disappeared a couple minutes later after making plans with Adam to meet up later at Bradford's house. Adam then took a seat in the corner, excited to watch the session with Bradford proceed. You continue descending the stairs, a blast of cool air blowing past you. Bradford visibly shivered. What's your strategy? I turned the music up, allowing Bradford a few minutes to descend the stairs. I walked over to Adam. The key is to get each of the patients in touch with as many emotions and feelings as possible. Happy, sad, afraid, amused, etc. Then I try to create sensory experiences, exposing them to heat, cold, smells, tastes, and so on. The more the hypnosis can infiltrate their brain, the more effective it is. What's your end goal with this session? Well, we have five senses, right? 
yeah, uh, sight, smell, touch, taste, and um, what's the last one? Hearing. He nodded. But a lot of our brain is unused, right? Yeah. So what if we can experience other senses, but don't know how to activate them? Like in the same sense that birds or whales know how and when to migrate, or how any number of animals and insects can locate food or water in almost any scenario. They have these intuitions that we don't quite understand. And do you think these sessions can activate those extra senses? I don't know if it's possible to activate them in the real world necessarily, but I do believe that we can activate them within the hypnosis. What kind of senses? I took another sip of my whiskey. It's still a theory, but I think we can tune our inner antenna, so to speak, to understand the secrets of the universe. Like what? Like if we're alone in the universe, like how all this came to be, like what happens to the souls who have passed. Adam sat in contemplation for a moment, then smiled. Damn. Well, let's hope Bradford can bring us home. I tipped my glass to him, sipped my whiskey, then took my place at the front of the room. Bradford hadn't moved an inch. As you descend the stairs, you begin to hear voices calling from above. You hear your dad, your siblings, your friends. They all voice their support. You can do it. Keep going. You're almost there. Be brave. Bradford sat up tall in his chair. Getting closer, I thought. The flaming basketball finally finds an end to the staircase. You step onto a cobblestone landing and look around you. You have descended into a large silo of some kind, maybe a cave or a well, with nothing but a door of similar size and configuration as the first two against the wall. On the ground, a flicker of light reveals the location of the cage keys wedged between two stones. However, before you pick the keys up, you realize that you must first open the door. Just then, someone descends the stairs behind you, but you don't feel scared. The person steps into the light of the flaming basketball, and you realize that it's you. You are standing face to face with yourself. He smiles at you, and you smile back. Bradford smiled, and I looked to Adam. He gave me a thumbs up. The other you puts his hand on your shoulder and looks into your eyes. He's almost like a more self-assured version of yourself. He's fearless. He's brave. He's a hero. You must understand, he says. You have been endowed for this mission. You were chosen long ago for this mission. Behind this door lies a cloud of knowledge. When you open the door and step inside, you will be immersed in this cloud you will be met with a deep understanding of the mysteries of the universe. You will see the origins of creation. You will understand the immensity of all that exists. You will know these things and understand them in a way that will allow you to communicate your findings to others in the real world. I took a deep breath and looked over to Adam again for approval. He nodded and mouthed, do it, 
with a look of utter anticipation on his face. The other you stands aside and disappears, leaving nothing between you and the door. You understand what you must do. You take three steps forward, place one hand on the cold metallic door and apply pressure. As you do so, you feel something trickling down your upper lip. You stop pushing and wipe your nose. You are bleeding. Adam and I watched Bradford carefully for about 15 seconds before he gently wiped his nose. He motioned his head to look down at his hand and opened his mouth in surprise. There was blood, actual blood, on his hands. Holy shit! Frankly, I was more shocked than he was. Bradford was my first completely immersed patient. He was in my complete control. This was not an empowering thought, mind you. It was a horrifying one. I briefly considered pulling the plug on the whole thing right then, guiding him away from the door and back up the staircase to the real world. But I didn't. Goddamn Lovecraft. I swallowed hard and held my bell steady. Now I'm going to count to three and ring the bell. When you hear the bell, you will push open the door and become immersed in the cloud. After a few moments in the cloud, I will ring the bell and you will exit the cloud and close the door behind you. I repeated the instructions, then took a deep breath. I mouthed to Adam, here we go. He nodded. One, two, three. Then I dinged the bell. Bradford jolted, flailing his arms and grunting. His chair rocked violently. I instructed Adam to steady it so he didn't tumble off. How responsible of me. The jolting stopped after a minute and Bradford sat still. Both his nostrils were bleeding now. Now, when I ring the bell again, you will exit the room and close the door behind you. One, two. Bradford stood up abruptly, sending the chair and Adam sprawling onto the floor behind him. He ripped his blindfold off and looked around frantically like a trapped animal. Bradford, it's all okay. But I knew it wasn't. He didn't wake up on his own volition, nor was there an external stimulus to wake him up, my bell or a loud noise like the thunder before. Something inside of the hypnosis woke him up. Adam stumbled to his feet, reaching for him. Bradford, it's all right, buddy. It's me, Adam, right here. No, don't touch him. Come here. Adam obeyed and stood next to me against the wall. Bradford looked around anxiously for another minute, his feet unmoving, then fixed his eyes on the concrete block wall on the opposite side of the room. Stay here. I walked to the other side of the room, between Bradford and the wall. The bell clutched in my hand. Frankly, I didn't know what to do. I had to assume he was still under some kind of hypnosis, though I didn't know whose. Bradford, when I count to three and ring the bell, you will come out of hypnosis. Again, when I count to three and ring the bell, you will come out of hypno- He bolted straight at me, knocking me to the side and plowing straight into the wall, head first. Shit! I stumbled back to my feet. Adam ran over. Between the two of us, we held Bradford down, 
He had a large gash on his head and a steady stream of blood pouring down his face, but he didn't seem to be in pain. Bradford, listen to me. He turned his head toward me, revealing jittering pupils as if there was an earthquake behind those eyes. Adam was crying. His phone buzzed across the room, diverting our attention for a moment. Uh, oh, oh, do we... Do we call the cops? Yes, call 911. I incoherently tried to piece together a story in my head. Once Adam got to his phone on the other side of the room, Bradford began seizing, knocking me on my ass. I backed up, recognizing my feeble body to be no match for his apparent raw animal strength. Please, Bradford, breathe with me. He again eyed the block wall and ran at it with full force, his skull crunching on impact. Blood spattered on the wall and the floor. He fell onto the ground with a hollow thud. Adam screamed. Oh my god! I tried to lay Bradford's lifeless body straight when his eyes shot open, a look of pure terror on his face. No! He rolled away from me. He got onto his hands and knees, breathing heavy. As I carefully eased toward him, he let out a loud grunt and began hitting his head on the concrete floor with inhuman intensity. The sound of his head repeatedly crunching against the floor like that will haunt me forever. Blood continued to pool beneath him. I backed away from him, helpless. Adam screamed in horror. No, no! After five or six hard hits... Bradford finally collapsed onto the ground, splashing in his own blood. Tears were streaming down my face. Adam was sobbing uncontrollably. A few moments passed in bone-chilling silence. Did you call anyone? Adam stared unblinking at Bradford's mangled head resting on the ground. Adam. He snapped out of it. Uh, no. I... He started swiping through his phone. Okay. The story. Our story. Then Adam's eyes grew wide. What? Adam stared at his phone, with his hand covering his mouth. The others. Trey and Bryson. He looked up at me. When they got to Bradford's house, they found Bradford's mom on the kitchen floor. She's dead. Shit. It's the hypnosis. It has to be. No, 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 no. That's that's impossible. The hypnosis can't control someone who isn't under hypnosis. It, it can't be related. No way. You said that the goal is to tap in other senses, right? To activate other parts of the brain? Well, yeah, that's a theory. But either way, how would that kill Bradford's mom? He slipped his phone into his pocket. I don't know. The only thing I can think of is that... Clearly Bradford was all in. I mean, you hypnotized him into a bloody nose, didn't you? Maybe when you put our moms in a cage on the beach... I don't know. Which... Oh, shit. I need to check on my mom. Then he darted up the basement stairs. Now I sit here, in my cold, mildewy basement, with this dead boy's body, penning my final haunting confession... 
For the record, I want to apologize to Bradford's family. I take full responsibility for his death. And in the case that I am the cause of Bradford's mother's death, I apologize for that too. I don't really want to think through the scientific implications if that is the case, to be honest. All I know is that whether I spend my days as a free man or behind bars, I don't know that I'll ever be able to sleep again, wondering what Bradford saw when he opened that door and stepped into the cloud. Something he saw drove him to this madness. That much is clear. I hear the police sirens outside now. One last note. To the psychiatric community or those who may be looking to build upon my research, some things are better left unknown. Dr. Marcus Klein There's something that every single one of us is doing right now, getting older. And that means we have to deal with our bodies slowly, inexorably breaking down. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author E.E. E. King, some people, like the woman we'll meet herein, are desperate to keep that youthful glow in their appearance no matter what. Performing this tale are Peter Lewis, Sarah Thomas, and Mick Wingert. So remember that aging can be a good thing. It's not all about beauty, because as we know, that's only skin deep. Janice was getting old. She could see it, but she didn't feel it. Inside, she was still 22, but looking out of the mirror was an older woman. She worked out, she dieted, she fasted, cleansing her body of the toxins of daily life. She toned and tanned, she tinted her skin with creams and sprays till it glittered like polished bronze. Her hair glistened with golden highlights and amber lowlights. Her lashes were lengthened by serums and glue-on extensions. She waxed everywhere. Her face was as hairless as a bowling ball. Her genitals equally naked, like an exotic breed of cat. She thought her face too round, so she'd had the fat suctioned out and inserted apple-sliced silicone wedges into pockets above her cheekbones. She'd had fat injections, though not the same fat, inserted below the implants, as a gaunt face was a sign of aging. Her silicone breasts protruded round like perfect half-domes of cut cantaloupes, firm and unmovable. Her lips were full, sensuous, and also silicone. 
She'd had tummy tucks, a nose job, lid lifts, liposuction, Restylane, Botox, Juvederm, Thermage, and mesotherapy, but still tiny wrinkles crept in, silent and sure as cats, scratching down her upper lip. She began to get peels, stripping away the first layer of epidermis to reveal the new skin beneath. At first, she frequented salons, spending hours and dollars freely as breath. Her face became a series of burns and regrowth, acids and serums. And then she discovered the website, www.regression.com. Professional peels online, 5%, 15%, 20 even 60% off. They pledged youth. They guaranteed a visage smooth and untouched as glass. She began to experiment, at first slowly and gently, but then more intensely. Her face barely had time to grow new skin before she would once again smother it in acids, hoping to reveal a younger self. One morning, after recovering from a series of particularly virulent peels, she examined her face minutely in a magnifying mirror. It was not perfect, not yet, but no doubt about it, she looked at least five years younger. Janice was startled from her reverie by a knock on the door. A stranger stood in the doorway. He was handsome, deep brown eyes, graying temples, and an air of familiarity that was unnerving. He reached down to kiss her cheek. Hey, babe, you look great, younger than ever. Although, I'd trade the wrinkles for some more playtime any day. So you can ask me in? Janice stood frozen in shock. Should she slap him, call the police? Somehow in pausing, she felt she had lost the momentum to slap. She drew herself up to her full height. Only 5'2". Too bad height implants were so difficult. Who are you? You're kidding, right? If you don't offer an explanation for your outrageous behavior, I will call the police. She had considered just demanding he leave, but some inchoate feeling stopped her. There was something about this man, something known, and nothing dangerous. Janice, are you serious? How do you know my name? Janice, baby, what's wrong? He bent to cup her face in his hands, but she pulled away. I mean it! I'll call the police. What are you on? Janice bristled. What do you mean? You come here like you know me. You kiss me, for God's sake. Now you accuse me of taking illicit substances? If you knew me at all, you'd know that I never ingest anything non-organic and pure- We've had this discussion before. Just because it's nature and organic doesn't mean it's good for you. Organic just means relating to or derived from a living organism. Arsenic is natural. So is hemlock. Hell, even apple seeds have cyanide. Natural organic cyanide. And how you and your organic girlfriends justify bodies full of plastic. He threw up his hands and turned to go, cupping his cheek where she had slapped him. She placed her hand on his shoulder. Wait, don't go. I... I'm sorry I slapped you, but I don't know who you are. You seem harmless, but... He looked shaken. You're serious, aren't you? That's scary, babe. Really, really scary. 
Perhaps you should let me in. He held out open palms in a universal gesture of disarmament. I'm Jerry. I've been your boyfriend for the last three years. Janice stiffened. What was the scam? Why would he lie? She hesitated between slamming the door in his face or inviting him in. He looked into her eyes, searching for recognition. Look, why don't you call Kathy? She will vouch for me. And maybe you will listen to her if you won't listen to me. Kathy? Please, please don't tell me you don't remember Kathy. She's been your best friend for the past four years. You guys talk every day, probably ten times a day. She introduced you to me. Don't you remember? You met her at an airport. You and she have told me that story so many times. How your eyes met across a ticket line. How a kindred spirit recognized a kindred spirit. How you ran into her in the lounge. How you hung out together until your flights diverged. How I was lucky that one of you was not a man or gay because you probably would have run away together. Janice remembered none of this. How about Sarah, your sister? Surely you remember your sister, don't you? Janice was insulted. Of course she remembered her sister. Who was this man insinuating she didn't remember her sister, saying she didn't remember her best friend, and who the hell was Kathy? Of course I know my sister. I shall call her. If you care to give me your number, I'll get back to you. Jerry looked deeply wounded. Janice, something is very, very wrong with you. You don't seem to realize it. But you need to see a doctor, a neurologist, and right away. Janice smiled frostily, extending her hand, palm up. Thank you so much for your concern. Your number, please? Jerry looked haunted, but reached into his back pocket. Damn, I don't have a card. May I? Here. Janice thrusted pen and paper into his hand. When he was done writing, she snatched the paper and slammed shut the door. She rushed to the phone to call Sarah, but on the way she was stopped by her reflection watching from the mirror. She smiled, and no doubt about it, she had erased at least five years. As much as we like to evoke them here on the podcast, we recognize that there's no fun in actually experiencing nightmares. They disrupt sleep and can have awful effects on our emotional and psychological well-being. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sarah Naughton, we meet a woman who is lucky enough to discover a new clinic which promises to help end her affliction of constant nightmares. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews, David Alt, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Andy Cresswell, and James Cleveland. So if night terrors are your problem, we can only hope you find relief, at least enough relief to get them out of your head.
After my shower, I come back in from the bathroom to find Ben hasn't even started getting ready for work. He's just sitting on the edge of the bed, his head in his hands. Are you okay? I cross the room and lay the back of my hand on his forehead. It's cool. You were screaming all night. I had to wake you up six times. I got about an hour's sleep. I touch his broad shoulder. I'm so sorry. And thanks for waking me. The idea that he might not have woken me makes my skin cruel. We'll have an early night tonight. I'll make a lasagna. I move to the pile of my work clothes on the armchair by the bed. I'll have to strip the bedding later. My side of the sheet is saturated with sweat. Thea. I straighten up, my shirt hanging limply from my hand. His skin tone is greenish, like he's going to throw up. I can't do this anymore. I can't survive on two hours sleep a night, always on edge, waiting for it to happen. Well, I manage. My smile turns brittle. If he knew what I had to go through almost every night of my life. He sighs, gets up and starts putting his clothes on. This isn't like him. Normally he'd argue back. It would end in laughter or tumbling back into bed. But he's not saying a word. And now he starts gathering up his belongings. Earphones, water bottle, the book about running that sat on the bedside table for three months. The familiar hand of fear closes around my chest. Hey, you know, I've tried. Hypnosis did nothing, but I don't mind going back on those sleeping pills if... I'm sorry. And suddenly I know that what he really means is... It's over. I watch from the window as he walks into the road and hails a taxi, then climbs in and is gone. The next few weeks pass in a daze of misery. We talked about him moving in. We fell asleep in front of the TV and had lazy married couple sex. It felt like home. Or at least the sort of home I always dreamed of. Back when I had good dreams. With no one there beside me, I have to max out on the sleeping pills and they leave me dozy and heavy-limbed for the rest of the day. Sometimes I fall asleep on the train, and one morning the dream gets me there. The man opposite wakes me. I thank him and reassure him that I'm fine. Then, to avoid the stares of the other passengers, I bury my head in the free newspaper someone's abandoned. I flick through it, unseeing, waiting for my heart rate to subside. A war, a wedding, a health scare about wine. We've just pulled out of the station before Victoria... When I see the advert, it's on the penultimate page, tucked into the corner beneath the weather forecast. Are bad dreams ruining your life? I don't get out with the other passengers. In fact, I only just scramble onto the platform before the train sets off back the way it came. My heart is pounding, but for once, not with fear, with excitement. The words of the ad spin through my mind as I jog to work half an hour late. If you suffer from night terrors, nightmares or simply bad dreams, we're looking for subjects for an experimental new therapy. The therapy is safe and early trials have produced encouraging results. Treatment will involve five nights residential stay at our central London clinic. 
expenses will be covered. Don't let nightmares rule your life. Get them out of your head. I stop in the street and tip my face up to the rain that has just started to fall. I think of Ben's broad back, his dark hair against my pillow, the head rush of his gaze holding mine. Encouraging results. At lunchtime, I call and arrange for a consultation. The clinic is impressive. It's in a discreet little muse of Harley Street, the brass panel on the wall reading, Let's Dream Clinic. I ring the bell and am buzzed in. My heels clack over a floor of polished marble studded with tiny fossils to the glass reception desk. The girl behind it, with her glowing skin and no hint of eye bags, asks me to wait. I sit down on a grey velvet sofa and glance at the pictures on the walls. They are mostly standard hospital fare, bright landscapes and flowers. But one of them, darker than the others, snags my gaze. I recoil. A woman in white is draped across a bed. Squatting on her stomach, looking straight at me from behind the glass, is a leering goblin. The Nightmare by Henry Fuseli. Pretty horrible, huh? A handsome blonde man of about 40 stands before me. I nod, but the shock of the image is subsiding. It's not as bad as I first thought. There's something almost comical about it, really. The eyes of the goblin, stalker of this woman's dreams, glitter with amusement, not hatred. Not the determination to kill. If she were alive today, we'd get that little asshole out of her head. I'm Dr. Scotus. It's a pleasure to meet you, Thea. He's American. I like that. Americans know what they're doing. I follow him to an airy little room looking out over Regent's Park, and we talk. I tell him I've been having the dream since I was eight years old. He asks if there was a trigger, and I tell him about the drowning of my stepsister on a family trip to Canva Sands. Yes, I've had therapy, and day to day there seem to be no lingering issues. It only comes out in my dreams. He writes this all down, then puts his pen down, steeples his fingers and looks up at me, his gaze serious. I hold my breath. He thinks I'm crazy. He just wanted people who dream about spiders or collapsing buildings, not this messed up past trauma stuff. Then, he smiles. It seems to me that you'd be a great candidate for our treatment. When can you come in? We arrange for the treatment to begin on Friday night. It involves deep brain stimulation, but without the use of chemicals or implants. They use magnetic fields to target the areas of the brain that light up when the sleeper is experiencing the most distress. By soothing the physical brain activity, they've discovered that the traumatic images themselves subside. The dreams lose their terrifying edge. It sounds miraculous, but it's just like giving the brain a bit of dopamine, he tells me. Only with a simple magnetic field that stimulates the mind to heal itself. There's so much we don't know about the brain, what it's capable of. It may be that these areas, once they're operating healthily, can do so much more than we expect. This excites me too. Maybe I'll get cleverer. 
The week crawls by, and every day I have to stop myself calling Ben to tell him that I've sorted it, that he can come back. Please, please come back. On Friday, I take my overnight bag to work. I can hardly concentrate and make stupid errors that result in my boss asking if I'm feeling okay. I tell him that actually I might be coming down with something, and maybe I should leave early. He agrees I should go home and rest. As soon as he's gone, I leap up from my desk and practically run out of the building. I'm subsisting on adrenaline alone by now, having slept no more than a few minutes in the last three days. I stopped taking the pills as Dr. Scotus requested. But of course, I couldn't let myself sleep naturally, not without someone there to wake me. By the time I get to the clinic, fatigue is dragging at my limbs and it's all I can do to climb the stairs to the sleep centre. The bedroom is lovely, subdued lighting, a proper double bed rather than the hospital bed I've been expecting. Pictures of rolling hills, the scent of lavender. Dr. Scotus hands me something resembling a black swimming cap, cobwebbed with wires. We'd like you to wear this to monitor your brain activity. It might feel odd at first, but shouldn't interfere too much with your sleep. You look pretty done in. Will someone be monitoring me all night? Of course. And if you're in extreme distress, we'll wake you. I sink into the bed. I'm so grateful. I feel like crying. I can sleep. Good night. Sweet dreams. Wait! I sit bolt upright, and Dr. Scotus turns at the door, smiling. This is going to sound stupid... You won't be able to see it, will you? My dream. Like, on a screen or something. It's just... It's so silly. Such a silly thing to be scared of. I'll be embarrassed. No, no, definitely not. We just see the brain activity the dream causes. Just little lights in your amygdala. Okay. Great. Well, good night. Good night, Thea. I lie back on the plump pillow and think of Ben, of the holiday we had in Sicily where the beach was rocky and the sea was limpid green instead of brown with sediment, of his beautiful chest glistening with sun cream, of his sun-bleached hair and lips that tasted of salt. I close my eyes. When I open them again, the sun has gone behind a cloud. I sit up. I'm sitting on a sandy beach on a towel emblazoned with the face of Beyoncé. It's no longer Ben beside me, but my mother. Her body is firm and young. Phil is beside her. His hair is still dark and he hasn't lost all the weight that made him look so gaunt, eaten from the inside by his grief. Why don't you go swimming, girls? It looks lovely. On the other side of my stepfather, her face moves into view. Sure. Come on, Thea. I get up and follow the figure down to the water's edge. She's smaller than me, graceful and slim, like girls my age ought to be. In the wind, the tips of her dark hair flicker like tongues. She wades into the water, then turns and makes a show of clutching herself, grinning at our parents. They wave, such a lively, fun little girl and lie down, curling towards each other. A moment's privacy. I dip a toe in, 
The water is vilely cold. Did you see the way your mum looked at you, waddling down here? My heart experiences the familiar sinking, shrinking feeling. Here we go. Now she's got me to compare you with, she'll see for herself that her daughter's fat and stupid. She'll start to hate you as much as we do. She throws herself backwards into the water, arching her back to show off the way her ribcage presses against her swimsuit. I take a step deeper. Your dad doesn't hate me. He tries to hide it, for your mum's sake. She can't care about you that much or she wouldn't be with him, would she? She knows how we feel about you. It's bad enough having to live with Eliza. But on this holiday, we're sharing a room. The poison seeps into my ears all night. I take another step, but the seabed shelves suddenly into deeper water and I slip, submerging myself completely. I burst, gasping out of the water to hear Eliza laughing in delight. ugly you look with your hair all flat against your fat cheeks. Oh, shut up! Make me fatty. I've never been a violent child. I've never hit or bit or scratched or even pulled someone's hair. But looking at her now, at her mocking smile and vicious black eyes, I feel a surge of pure white rage. I launch myself at her. We fight in the deep water. She scratches my face. I twist her arm behind her, forcing her head down under the surface. It doesn't feel like very long. Just a few seconds before I let go and kick out for the shore. I get out and stomp up the beach, the sand pushing up through my toes, the wind cold on my wet back. Flopping down on the towel, I rifle through the beach bag for my foot. Mum breaks away from Phil's embrace. Where's Eliza? They both sit up. And this is where the dream departs from the reality of their panicked run to the water's edge. Of Phil splashing and shouting, diving blind into the opaque water, while my mum calls 999 and shrieks down the phone. Oh, there she is. Instead, dream Phil looks behind me. I turn. Eliza is crawling up the beach, but not the Eliza who went into the water. This is the Eliza who washed up on the pebbles at Dungness a week later. Her body is bloated, the skin greenish black. Behind the curtain of her dripping hair, her eyes are milky pebbles, and something has nibbled the flesh of her hands. The fingertips that rake the wet sand as she drags herself up the beach our bone. Come and swim with me. Her voice is thin in the wind. I get up and try to run, but my limbs are leaden and I fall to my knees. I start crawling towards the dunes, cutting my knees on slivers of sea grass. But she can crawl faster, like a spider skittering across the sand. The distance between us is closing when I throw myself into the dunes. Scrambling over the ridges and hollows, my panic panting masks any sound of pursuit. But soon exhaustion sets in. The dunes are endless. The next hollow I roll into has an overhang of sea grass. 
I tucked myself under me. Perhaps she will scuttle straight past me. I strain my ears. Only the rustling of the sea grass in the wind breaks the silence. Then the rustling becomes loud. A grey hand parts the grass above my head, and then, as I hunch there, paralysed with horror, Eliza's terrible face appears. I wake, screaming. It's a long time since I've gone this far without someone rescuing me. The lights go on, and a nurse bustles in with a glass of water. You're all right. You're safe. It's all in your head. It's not real. It's over now. I sip the water gratefully, waiting for my heartbeat to settle. I apologise as I shift away from the hot, wet patch on the sheet, now rapidly cooling. Don't worry. The mattress has a protector. In the end, I only have to suffer one more night of this. My nightmare is so strong, my distress so clear and consistent, the constellation of my fear lit up on the screen like a night sky winking with stars, that they can give me the treatment on Sunday morning. They put the cap back on my head and attach electrodes to it, which they plug into the machine that is displaying the starry pattern of my nightmare. Then, they flick a switch. It hurts a bit, as if a leather strap is being tightened across my skull. Stars explode in my vision. Everything starts to throb with an accompanying hum, like my head is stuck inside a wasp's nest. And then, when I think I can't take it a moment longer, it stops. Dr. Scotus takes off the cap. Look at the screen. I do. Where there were stars before, now there is just an expanse of black space. <gasps> She's gone! And burst into tears. That night, in my own bed, I lay awake for a long time, just gazing up at the ceiling. I don't want to sleep, for the usual reasons, but also because I've allowed myself to hope that I will sleep untroubled for the first time in 17 years, that I might, God help me, get the love of my life back. For it not to have worked, to lose Ben a second time, would be devastating. I don't know how I'd carry on. Eventually, as the sky is starting to lighten and the street outside is as quiet as suburbs of London ever get, I drift off. I am there, straight away, back on canvas sands, lying on my Beyoncé towel, looking up at the sky the colour of overwashed bed linen. I can hear the shush of the waves and the wind in the sea grass of the dunes behind me. Come for a swim with me. My heart stutters. But the voice is not Eliza. I turn my head, hardly daring to hope. His skin is goosebump and his hair blows in the wind. Come on. We get up and run, hand in hand to the water's edge, where I hesitate, searching the dark water. It's nice. My breath catches in my throat, waiting for a waxy arm to emerge from the depths and close around his ankle. But it doesn't. He holds his hand out to me, and I walk in. The water is warm, silken with sediment. 
We wade out to the ledge, then jump off into the deeper water. We swim out as far as we dare until the current gets too strong. Then back to tread water by the ledge, smiling into one another's eye. Then we get out and run, shivering up the beach. Huddled under the towel with Ben's strong arm around me, I stare at the sea. Waves lap at the shore, leaving a lace hem of bubbles. In the distance, a container ship drifts slowly by. The clouds part, and a shaft of sunlight falls onto the water, scattering diamonds on the wave tips. I wake to warm, dry sheets, fragrant with lavender. I sing in the shower and put on my best work outfit, a burgundy velvet tunic dress and high boots, make my face up without having to apply the layers of concealer under my eyes. Even the weather can't dampen my mood as I head for the station. I dance through the puddles and run my finger along the streaming railings, making them ring like xylophone keys. The rain on the cars and pavement sounds like applause. I greet the man on the newspaper stool like an old friend, let three people pass through the barriers before me and help a woman with a pram up the stairs to the platform. It's six minutes to the next train, but I couldn't concentrate on my phone or a paper. My heart is doing little somersaults of joy. My synapses are sparking like fireworks. I can't text Ben now, sounding like a mad person. I'll do it later, when the monotony of work has calmed me down, asking him to meet me tonight in our favourite pub. As the euphoria of relief subsides to a warm suffusion of happiness, I allow myself a moment's regret. I am sorry for what happened. Eliza might have been unpleasant, but she didn't deserve to die. But I have done my penance, served my sentence, and now I am free. The train announcer warns that platforms are slippery, not to leave bags unattended, that the next train is approaching. I step up to the yellow line. There's a commotion further down the platform. People are shouting and pointing over the edge, their hands covering their mouths. A man breaks from the crowd and runs forward, dropping to his knees. I can see the blunt, insect face of the train in the distance, its headlights shattered by the rain. It will be here in seconds. The man reaches forward. Out of the shelter of the platform roof, the rain is cold and relentless, clasping my hair to my cheeks. There are shouts for him to hurry. He's nodding encouragingly at something down on the track, beckoning with his free hand. The train sounds its horn. It'll be here any moment. Whatever is down there will be crushed. He leans forward, and his arm stiffens as something out of sight catches hold of his hand. And suddenly... I don't want to see what it is. I back away to the steps, only dimly aware from the corner of my eye of the dark shape that's now being helped up onto the platform. The train arrives with roar and rush and shudder. People pour on. The doors shut, the engine screams and the train moves off towards London. After a moment, it's out of sight and out of hearing and I'm standing on the platform, alone, almost alone. In the unnatural silence, there is a drip of water falling from the tips of long, dark hair. Someone calls my name. The voice is thick, 
the tongue nibbled to a stump by crabs and shrimp. As I turn and run up the stairs, I hear, behind me, the skitter of bony fingertips across concrete. They promised they would get my nightmare out of my head. And they did. When it comes to therapy, treating children can be difficult. Among the myriad issues they can have, it's even more difficult to help them when it's the child's imagination causing the problems. And in this tale, shared with us by author K.G. Lewis, we meet a doctor who is helping a young girl whose drawings cause considerable torment. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Nicole Goodnight, and Wafia White. So put down your pencils, pens, brushes, and sketch pads. It's time to hear the tale of Adelaide and the Paper Man. Hello, Adelaide. Are you ready? I reached out my hand to the little girl sitting in the waiting room. Adelaide stood up and grabbed my outstretched hand, looking back at her mother for reassurance. It's okay, honey. Dr. Morrigan is here to help you. Go and talk to her. I'll be waiting for you right here when you get done. I promise. Adelaide stood there, staring at her mother, unsure of what to do until I gave a gentle tug of her arm. Come with me. I really think you're going to like it in there. All the kids do. I led her into my office. She gasped as I released her hand to shut the door behind us. That was the reaction most kids had when they saw the way my office was decorated. The room looked more like a colorful toy store than it did a doctor's office. I watched her walk over to the corner where the stuffed animals were gathered together in a huge pile. She reached out to pick one up but stopped, looking back at me to make sure it was okay. You can play with anything in here, except for the things on my desk. I need those things to do my job. Adelaide picked up a stuffed unicorn and sat on the floor with it in her lap. While she pretended to groom the stuffed animal's mane, I grabbed a few sheets of paper and a box full of broken crayons from one of the desk drawers. Walking over to where Adelaide was, I sat down on the floor next to her, putting the paper and the crayons in front of her. Do you think I can get you to draw me a picture? She hugged the unicorn close to her body and shook her head emphatically. Why not? She turned her head from me and focused her attention on the unicorn. When it was clear she wasn't going to answer, I decided to ask a more pointed question. Is it because of the paper man? She turned her head to look at me, her brow furrowed, wondering how I knew about the paper man. Your mom told me you think the paper man took your dad away. Can you tell me what happened? Adelaide shook her head. You won't believe me either. 
you might be surprised by what I believe. I reached into my purse hanging on the chair beside my desk. I pulled out an old photo and handed it to Adelaide. What do you see? She looked at the photo for a second before trying to hand it back to me. It's just an open closet door. I pushed the photo back towards her. Look closer. She held the picture close to her face, scouring every detail. When she finally saw what was hidden in the closet, she dropped the photo, letting it flutter to the floor. What is that? For lack of a better term, that is the monster in my closet. I picked up the photo, glanced at it, then put it back in my purse. Even after all these years, the image of those disembodied eyes staring back at me from the closet gave me chills. There was a monster in your closet? From the tone of her voice, I could tell she was starting to trust me. There was, back when I was about your age. What happened to it? I don't know. We moved the day after I took that photo. Because of the monster? No, not because of the monster. I actually didn't know there was a monster there until years later when I was going through my photos. What about you? When did you first notice the paper man? It seemed like the perfect moment to steer the conversation back towards Adelaide. She got really quiet and didn't move a muscle. I thought I had misread her and that she had retreated into her thoughts again. But then she answered. About a year. Can you remember the first time you saw him? She nodded her head, but remained silent. I placed my hand on her shoulder. It's okay, Adelaide. I believe the paper man is real, and I'm here to help you get rid of him. Promise? I held out my pinky for a pinky swear. I promise. She gave a thin-lipped smile and hooked her pinky around mine. Now, tell me everything you remember. Adelaide looked down at the unicorn as she collected her thoughts. I was at school. I was in the nurse's office because Billy Kabler pushed me down and made me skin my knee. Billy Kabler? Why does that name sound familiar? Adelaide began to cry. <laughs> I reached back into my purse, this time pulling out my phone. I entered the name Billy Kabler into the search bar of my internet browser. Several headlines popped up, reminding me why the name was so familiar. I placed my arm around Adelaide and pulled her close. Billy went missing the first time you saw the paper man, didn't he? She began to sob even harder, but I could feel her nod her head against my chest. It's... it's... my fault. He's gone. I removed my arm from her shoulder and used my hand to lift her chin so that she was looking at me. It's not your fault. You are not responsible for what the paper man does. I held her for several minutes and kept repeating that it was not her fault. Once she calmed down, she told me more. But he took Billy and my dad because I drew pictures of them. How can it not be my fault? Because I know what the paper man is and what he is capable of doing. You only drew those pictures because the paper man manipulated your anger driving you to pick up those crayons and give form to the thoughts he was putting inside your head. He's just a parasite, feeding off your emotions. Adelaide's eyes narrowed, and her demeanor suddenly changed. You're lying. You don't really believe me. You're just pretending to like me. I bet that photo you showed me isn't even real. 
I knew the reason for the sudden outburst was because the paper man had finally had enough and was ready to put an end to this conversation. He was inciting her to take action against me. I tried to fuel her anger further. Maybe I am lying. Maybe you should draw my picture. I pushed the paper and box of crayons toward her. Maybe I will. She grabbed a crayon and began to draw. I didn't try to stop her. Instead, I got up and walked over to my desk and retrieved something from one of the drawers. When she finished the picture, she looked down in horror at what she had drawn. She picked up the drawing, intending to tear it up, but I held out my hand to stop her. Don't do that. I needed you to draw that picture. It's the only way we're going to be able to stop him. (laughs) I'll tell you when the time is right. For now, don't let go of that picture. As soon as I finished speaking, the room grew cold and lost its color. I knew what that meant. Something was crossing dimensions. Adelaide pointed to the wall. He's come. When the paper man appeared, he looked like an enormous stick figure drawn on the wall with a giant black crayon. Watching him reach out and pull himself free from the two-dimensional surface of the wall was like watching a cartoon character climb out of a TV. Once he was free, he made his way towards me, a crudely drawn knife clutched in his hand. When he appeared on the wall, he also appeared in the picture Adelaide had drawn. Every step that brought him closer to me in the real world also brought him closer to me in the drawing. If he got a hold of me, that piece of paper would become my grave. I tossed the bottle of whiteout I had grabbed from my desk to Adelaide. Erase him. The paper man looked over at Adelaide, then back at me, weighing his options. He decided to go after Adelaide, knowing she now posed a bigger threat to him. I jumped in front of the paper man as he turned towards Adelaide. I held out my arms to prevent him from getting past me. I'm the one you want. He knocked me aside with a swipe of his arm. In an act of desperation, I reached out and grabbed hold of the paper man's leg. I regretted the decision the moment my hands closed around his ankles. Touching him made me feel incredibly uncomfortable. I had to fight the urge to let go of his leg, knowing if I did, he'd take Adelaide instead of me. Hurry up! I can't hold him much longer! Watching her fumble with the cap of the whiteout was like watching her in slow motion. It seemed to take forever. When she started to dip the brush into the bottle, I couldn't take it any longer. The paper man's hands were inches away from latching onto her. Just pour it on the picture! If she had been a few seconds slower in responding, he would have grabbed her. Thankfully, she managed to upend the bottle and pour it over the image of the paper man that was on her drawing. As the whiteout flowed over his picture, he began to vanish from the real world. Make sure nothing of him remains, or we'll have to do this all over again. A few minutes later, after Adelaide and I composed ourselves, we walked back out into the waiting room, where her mother was reading a magazine. She set it back on the table as we approached. How did it go? I looked at Adelaide. It went great. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, great. Do I need to make another appointment? I don't think that will be necessary. But you have my number if anything comes up.
In our final tale, we meet a man who shares a bizarre tale from the time he worked as a laboratory technician, a biolab striving to create a drug which prevents cell death. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Annalise Amelia Boyd, science is making breakthroughs in the effort to prolong human life, but there are consequences that occur when the results are just a little too successful. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jeff Clement, Aaron Lillis, and Mike Delgadio. So remember, science is serious stuff. This is no joke. Even if the story starts with the setup, a man walks into a bar. I met the stranger in Tony's tavern around nine on a Friday night. I had been in my usual spot at the far end of the bar since six and was on my third or fourth whatever's cheapest beer when he walked in. For the entire evening, I paid little attention to the comings and goings of the others in the bar, too occupied with thoughts of how I'd picked the wrong career path, how vast my hatred of customer service was, and how one day I'd quit my shitty nine-to-five and start my woodworking business I'd dreamed of since my youth. The only reason I pulled myself from the depths of my self-pity at the sound of the front doorbell was because of the bartender, a part-time sheriff deputy and acquaintance named Marcus. Hey, watch it, buddy. You break my door, you replace it. The establishment fell silent. All eyes turned to see what swung the door open so violently that the windows rattled in their frames and threatened to knock sports memorabilia off the wall. Sorry. The man closed the door behind him, muttered an apology, and began to weave through the tables toward the back bar. And as he did, I took in the stranger's appearance. His gait was all wrong. Each step was wobbly and uncertain, like a newborn fowl taking his first steps. The baseball cap pulled over his hair blocked out most of his face, but even in the dim light of Tony's, I could see his skin was pallid. No doubt from the biting winter night he just exited. As he passed a group of 20-somethings gathered around the billiard table, they all turned to each other, noses wrinkled and faces contorted into looks of disgust. Looks I would soon understand were perfectly justified as he settled onto the stool beside me. Before moving to upstate New York, I spent my early childhood in the city, and in those years I saw and smelled many a homeless person. That putrid mixture of shit, piss, sour sweat, and clothes that hadn't been laundered in weeks or even years haunted my nostrils. But that's not the odor the stranger carried with him. It was a scent vaguely familiar but foreign at the same time. And something that was impossibly worse than the ode the homeless. When Marcus walked up to take the man's order, I thought for sure he'd kick the vagrant out. But good old Marcus was patient. 
What'll it be for you? A shot of Jack. I expected the man's voice to be gruff, roughened by years of living on the streets. But it wasn't. It was soft and delicate, coming out as almost a whisper. Marcus did his best to hide his revulsion. You want to start a tab? The stranger nodded and thanked him. Thanks. Marcus returned moments later with a shot glass filled to the brim with the man's requested liquor. I gritted my teeth. Of all the goddamn seats, this asshole had to sit right next to me. Our elbows were practically touching. Thanks. Friday nights were my only escape from painful small talk, water cooler gossip, and doing my best to mask my existential pain with my customer service voice. There were my few hours to forget how I'd be doomed to work in retail until I'm six feet under. And I would never get my handcrafted furniture business off the ground if I could hardly make rent. I threw back what was left of my now tepid piss water and slammed my glass down a little too hard. A bit of bourbon sloshed out of the stranger's glass and onto the resin bar top. I craned my neck to seek out Marcus to settle my tab and then begin my walk back home. Much to my disappointment, I caught sight of Marcus helping a young woman set up the karaoke machine at the other end of the building. I slumped in my seat, knowing full well he'd be over there for a while. Marcus was not the most technologically savvy fellow. The stranger picked up his shot. His hand shook as it guided the glass to his lips. Amber liquid spilled down his chin and dribbled onto his coat. With his head tilted up to the light, I got a better look at his face. He was a young man, at least ten years younger than myself. Not a day older than twenty-five. But even still... He looked worn, as though he hadn't slept in weeks. Not just worn, his skin was damn near transparent, like transfer paper. The light reflected off of dull, smoky marbles sunken deep in his eye sockets. Glassy, dead. Prickling tickled the back of my neck as I took in more and more details of the man's appearance. My heartbeat quickened in my chest as he turned to me, clearly noticing my gaze. His sullen face with faded blue marbles for eyes glared at me. Dry and cracked lips parted to speak. I braced myself for him to berate me for staring to call me out for the look on my face that was so clearly one of unsettlement. But he did none of those things. Instead, he offered me a weak smile. <sighs> Doesn't taste like it used to. 
My drunken brain attempted to concoct a response, but I was far too distracted by the way his teeth looked too long for his mouth, or his gums too short. Of course, it'll probably be my last. What did he mean by that? His last drink of the night? Did he just stop in for one shot and he was ready to jet off? I'm dying. I let out an uncomfortable chuckle, a defense mechanism I picked up while working in retail. <laughs> Aren't we all? The grave look on the stranger's face told me he wasn't joking. He delivered the statement with the utmost sincerity and without the slightest hint of sarcasm. It wasn't boozy philosophy. He was dead serious. I suppose. The name's Jed. What do they call you? I stuck out my hand more out of habit than of politeness. Abner. A cold hand grasped mine limply and gave my digits an anemic squeeze before receding back into trench coat pockets. Nice to meet you, Abner. Marcus had returned to his post behind the bar, this time conversing with one of the young men from the pool game. I readied myself to give him a wave so he could save me from the conversation I was being drawn into, but something stopped me. Even when Marcus looked my way, I diverted my eyes and looked back to the man who called himself Jed. I sound so melodramatic, don't I? I'm afraid I'm a lousy conversationalist. Truth be told, I'm not even sure why I'm here. Maybe I thought coming here would make me feel better. Make things feel normal. Feel... Right. Jed looked down at the bar top. <sighs> or maybe I just need someone to talk to. All at once, it clicked. Jed must have been suicidal. Guilt washed over me like a wave. I reached out and touched the shoulder of his coat. I scrambled for the right words, suddenly feeling as though I were treading over broken glass and afraid to take a wrong step. Hey, you need me to... to call someone for you? For help? Do you need help? Not the help you're offering. Marcus had returned. Can I get you anything else? No, thank you. My escape route had presented itself. I looked to Marcus and then Jed. What if this poor guy jumped off a bridge or into traffic or offed himself in some horrible way? How guilty would I feel if I had the opportunity to help but did nothing? Did nothing but turn my back and leave? Did it matter that I didn't know him from Adam? 
Did it matter he reeked of death? You heading out? Maybe he could sense my discomfort. Or maybe it was a not-so-subtle hint that I'd drunk plenty and I'd best be leaving. As much as I longed to be laying on my well-worn couch watching trash TV at home, I shook my head. I gestured to my empty glass. I'll take another. Marcus lifted an eyebrow, shrugged and poured me a pint of cheap beer, which I had no real intention of drinking. I waited until Marcus was out of earshot. How can I help? What I want to... need to tell you is going to sound insane, and I know that you're not going to believe me. Hell, I wouldn't believe me if I were you, but I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm asking you to listen. Just listen. Will you do that for me? Christ, what was I getting myself into? Friday nights were my reprieve from social interactions, and I might have been signing myself up for listening to this poor sod's entire life story. Will you? Feeling as though I had a moral obligation, I said, of course. Jed smiled. Good. God, where do I begin? I suppose I should start with... I prayed he wouldn't say the beginning or the day I was born or something else that would indicate that I was going to be there for a while. Wade Laboratories. That ugly gray building on 4th and Main? I drove by that eyesore every day on my way to work. Apart from the chain superstore I worked at, Wade was the largest company in town. The very same. I'm a... I was a laboratory technician there. I was hired back in May, straight out of college. You wouldn't imagine my excitement at the prospect of getting a start date right after graduation, while all my friends were spending months looking for a job. Of course, after knowing how fucked up things turned out, I would much rather be waiting job listings and looking for ways to defer my student loan payments than... I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry... It's fine. Laboratory technician sounds so prestigious. But all I did was clean beakers and test tubes, wipe down the lab benches, take care of test animals, and... dispatch them as needed. I was a glorified janitor. A custodian with a master's degree making only slightly more than I made flipping burgers in high school. It was a decent job, though. It was easy work, paid the bills, which is all I could really ask for. Of course, it came with some downsides. The scientists could be a little condescending at times. 
Like, just because I didn't have some extra letters after my title, I was somehow less than them. The primary investigator was the worst out of all of them. Dr. Shelby Shaw. She's a real piece of work. Extremely intelligent, but ruthless. And a huge gun nut, too, which you would never guess looking at her. Sounds like my kind of girl. Jed grimaced, ignoring my comment. Anyways, for what it was, it was a decent gig. That was up until the accident. The smile dropped from his lips. A major study Wade Labs was conducting was on developing a drug to stop apoptosis. Familiar with cell biology? No. The 10th grade was the last time I had to think much on biology. Or any science, for that matter. And even then, I only knew enough to eat by with a C-. When would that information ever have a practical application for me? Anyway, I knew the basics. We live, we fuck, we die. I absentmindedly drew spirals in the condensation that had accumulated on the bar listening more to the karaoke singer doing her best Britney Spears impression than Jed's tale of scientific exploits. Thoughts of my lonely walk of shame back home crept into my mind. And ironically, it was me who made the discovery that kicked this whole thing off. I knew there was something wrong when I started having some trouble disposing of the mice. My attention had returned to Jed. How do you mean? Jed looked at me solemnly. They... stopped dying. I felt my brows creep together. What? You heard me right. They wouldn't die. At least not by normal means. Usually I'd use pentobarbital. It's the same stuff vets use to put animals to sleep. It's quick. It's painless from what I could tell. But it, it stopped working. The first time it happened, I brought it to Shaw's attention. Don't worry about it, she told me. She took the mouse back to the second floor lab and I went about my business, not giving it much thought. And then it happened three more times over the course of two weeks. And each time, Shaw took the mice away, and I was told not to worry about it. Jed stopped his story and eyed my perspiring and, as of yet, untouched beverage. I scooted it toward him. Oh, no thanks. And it'd be wasted on me. You sure? Jed nodded, so I took a sip as he continued his story. Some weeks later, Shaw caught me after my lunch break. There's been some changes in protocol. Pentobarbital will no longer be used in the disposal of subjects. 
You are to decapitate them, and then immediately throw them into the incinerator. This mortified me. I'd never been a huge fan of the use of animals in research, even if they were just little white mice. But what she asked of me was too much. I couldn't cut the heads off mice and toss them into a fire. It was animal cruelty, and that's what I told her. That's inhumane. Barbaric, even. Why can't we use succinylcholine or pancuronium? They're lethal in high doses. Those avenues are far too expensive. But if you are that uncomfortable with the new changes to protocol, you are more than welcome to quit. I'm sure there are plenty of graduates who'd be more than happy to replace you. And what she said was true. Had I quit, Wade Labs would have been flooded with hundreds of resumes of hopeful college graduates eager to get their foot in the metaphorical door. And I would be out of the only job who paid enough to get me by. I couldn't stomach the thought of beheading mice. But what I also couldn't stomach was going back to the food industry or... Worse yet, move back to Vermont to live with my parents, who'd be less than happy to see me. So I stayed. Shaw provided me with what looked like a miniature guillotine to use on the mice, unlucky enough to end up on the kill list, as well as an industrial-sized incinerator. It was... Jed's body shuddered as he sucked in a long breath. His voice had become shaky. It was awful. The way their bodies moved, even after I... I, I, I knew it was just muscle spasms, but it terrified me. I patted a comforting hand on Jed's back, unsure of what else I could do. As much as Shaw and the rest of them would like to think I was just some stupid kid who didn't know any better, I got whiffs of what they were up to upstairs. I could hear them talking about it in the hallway, muttering about it in the elevator. They were unsuccessful in developing a drug to postpone cell death. But through some happy mistakes, they thought they'd inadvertently discovered a cure for death. That's impossible, I know. That's what I thought at first, too. I thought I was putting together pieces that weren't there. Maybe I read one too many science fiction novels, and I wanted to believe something sinister was going on. It was just business as usual. It was easy enough to dismiss my conclusions until the accident. It happened a couple of weeks ago, late one night. I'd been tasked with cleaning the second floor of the main research lab. I wiped down the counters, cleaned the fume hoods, gathered the dirty lab coats to be laundered later on, and then got to washing what was left for me in the sink. I turned on the water, 
picked up a flask and turned it over. I realized I didn't check to see if there was anything inside until I wished I had. Whatever it was got all over my hands. There was so much of it. I was wearing gloves, but I didn't stop it from passing through the thin vinyl and into my skin. Jed's words began to run into one another as he became more frenzied in his recounting of events. All of it happened so quickly. I ran to the sink to get it off, but it was too late. It had entered my bloodstream and my god did it work fast. I fell to the floor. I convulsed. Every muscle in my body burned, seeming to stretch and contract simultaneously. My heart beat so fast I thought... No, I I knew I was going to explode. Over my own screams, I heard shouting and footsteps rush into the room. And then I heard Shaw. Do you want to die, Jed? What was I supposed to say? Nobody in their right mind would say yes. Would you? I shook my head. Cottonmouth had set in, and an egg swelled in my throat. I felt hands turn me over in a sharp pain unlike anything I'd ever felt at the base of my skull. Then everything went black. I don't know how much time passed between then and when I woke up. I suppose it doesn't matter. When I did... I was not in a hospital. I was still in a lab, in one of the refrigerated storage rooms. Every inch of my body burned, each nerve a match head set ablaze. Muscles pulling in opposite directions just as they had during the accident. Shaw was there to explain what happened. There was an accident, Jed. A very bad accident. Apparently, one of the scientists had mistakenly left a powerful neurotoxin in a flask that you were, in turn, exposed to. Fortunately, myself and a few others were still in the building, heard your screams, and rushed to your aid. Why am I not at the hospital? We've turned a corner in our research recently, as I'm sure you know. What do you mean? Don't pretend you haven't been looking through waste bins and reading notes over our shoulders trying to catch a glimpse at our work, Jed. We all know you've been dying to know what we've been working on. What did you do to me? We bought you some time. Shaw sneered at me, and she looked down at me, writhing on the floor. (laughs) From what? Your death. You were dying until we administered Lot 73 and brought you back. I couldn't believe what she told me. I asked again why I wasn't brought to a hospital. I'm giving you an opportunity to see what we've been up to firsthand. Isn't that what you wanted? 
I'm giving you a front row seat of the biggest medical breakthrough since the dawn of man as our first human test subject of Lot 73. The crowd in Tony's had died down. The pool-playing group had left, and the karaoke singer had taken up residence at a table with a few of her girlfriends. I watched Marcus step out into the parking lot, unlit cigarette in one hand and his cell phone pressed against his ear. What are you saying? They held you hostage? I wanted so badly to dismiss everything Jed was telling me as the deranged ramblings of a scornful ex-employee. I wanted to not believe him. And yet I couldn't. In not so few words, yes. I became Wade Lab's first human lab rat. For weeks, they poked, prodded, took samples here, took samples there. All while my body was on fire like the neurotoxin had never left my system. I also learned more about Lot 73. It's a cure for death. You mentioned that. Jed shook his head. <laughs> There's no such thing. But you said... There's nothing that can stop death. There never will be a cure for death. And should there be... It's not natural. I'm sitting in front of you right now, occupying space. I can walk and talk. I could pour alcohol down my throat, but I'm not alive. I don't understand what you mean. Of course you're alive. I laughed nervously once more. <laughs> not wanting to entertain the idea that it had been a corpse I was speaking with. I don't understand most of it myself. Shaw and her team don't understand it either. They stumbled upon it by mistake, and they've been spending months trying to unravel the mysteries of Lot 73. They used the mice, and then me. Jed pulled his hands from his pockets and reached for the zipper of his coat. His thumb and index finger grasped the toggle and slowly pulled. I recoiled at the sight of his blackened fingernails, but soon saw a sight far worse. What laid beneath the trench coat was his bare chest. Every inch of skin, black and putrefied. A Y-shaped incision marked his flesh, knitted together with blood-stained thread that gave the appearance of railroad tracks. My eyes drifted down to his stomach, which was sunken, tissue puckering inward as if there was nothing behind it. That rancid stench wafted into my face, I looked away and gagged. That smell, that stench once so hard for me to place suddenly had a name. Decay. What? 
What happened? <laughs> An autopsy. What else? They've removed my organs, drained me of blood, and even after all that, I'm still here. They tried every drug, poison, and caustic chemical on me. Nothing worked. I beat my eyelids together in an attempt to clear them of the tears which had begun to accumulate. So, what are you saying? Jed zipped his coat, ignoring my question. What's worse than all of this is I don't think what happened to me was an accident at all. Shaw was bored with little white mice. She wanted to see a lot 73 work on a human body. I was the lowest of the low to her. Just a, just a dumb kid. She must have known I had no significant other, no friends or social life to speak of. Maybe she knew I wasn't on good terms with my parents. I, if I just disappeared, there would be nobody there to miss me. She was the one who, oh, so carefully planted the neurotoxin in that flask and made sure it was on the top of the pile and made sure it was me who had to clean it. She must have had it all planned out. I shouldn't be here. The state I'm in is unnatural. What? Seventy-three doesn't cure death. I swallowed the bitter mixture of light beer and gastric juices rising in my throat. How can you be be, be rotting? Because I'm dead. Lot 73 seems to preserve only neural pathways. Or at least, that's the theory Shaw has adapted. It's a sort of suspended animation, freezing nerves in the moments leading up to death. That's why I can still feel the neurotoxin. Everything else, like tissue, flesh, organs, they aren't preserved in the same way. On the night of the accident... Shaw didn't buy me any goddamn time. All she did was keep part of me alive. The conscious part. While the rest of me died. The mice weren't dying, though. That's what you said. How can you be... The word dead suddenly seemed... dirty... The mice didn't die because they were already dead. Pentobarbital only works on living tissue. Shaw kept me refrigerated to preserve me for as long as possible. <laughs> Keep my meat from spoiling. Jed said that last sentence with a chuckle. A grimace that is morbid joke. So... You'll die eventually? I'm 
dead already, Abner, aren't you listening? But yes, my body will waste away to the point I'm no longer able to walk or talk. And I hope to Christ that means I won't be conscious anymore. Is that what will happen, though? Well, that's what Shaw was hoping to see with me. They wanted to see how long I could go before I wasted away to nothing. But that could take weeks. Weeks of being trapped in a body, slowly decaying. Which is why I left. This morning, the door to my room was left unlocked. So I took the opportunity and got the hell out. Well, why don't you go to the police? Or a hospital? Get some help. Christ, why the hell would you come here? I thought of it. But I know I'd just become someone else's science experiment. It's funny that all my life I've feared my own death as most of us do. But now that's all I want. It's like I know with every fiber of my being, I'm a walking abomination. I'm a freak of nature. To exist like this isn't right. It goes against every law of nature. Can you understand that? I didn't understand, but I nodded. That brings me to the next favor I ask of you. Can you kill me, Abner? God, no. I can't do that. Please. I can't do this by myself. Believe me, I wouldn't ask this of you if it wasn't the only way. You just said it can't be done. That you're dead already. And you have to wait for your body to... The image of Jed's necrotic yet somehow still animated flesh flashed before my eyes and caused my words to catch in my throat. No, no, no. There's one other way. The way I had to dispose of the mice. You need to cut off my head. I cradled my face in my hands and exhaled into my sweaty palms. Christ, I'm not doing that. Do it yourself. I can't. Please. Please do this for me. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. End this for me. I'm not a killer. No way. You're not killing me. Shaw already killed me. Please, that's all I ask. With each word spoken, his tone grew more desperate. Oh, that's all you ask. You act like this is some simple favor, and it's not. It's murder you're asking me to commit. It's not murder, not really. Please, Shaw's going to be after me. I wouldn't be surprised if she's already contacted the police and put a bee on the lookout for me. Wade Labs has this town in its pocket. They've got that sort of influence. I can't go back to that hellhole. 
My hands slipped down to my face. Tears returned to my eyes. I turned to Jed, the rotting corpse who I had been talking to. The hunk of undead flesh and bones who asked me to put him out of his misery. His glazed-over, dead eyes bore into mine. I couldn't imagine what he had been through. Suddenly, my gripes about my workplace seemed petty and trite. An angry soccer mom chewing me out for not accepting her expired coupons for organic granola hardly measured up to being violated in the ways he described. Is there... some other way? Other than... you know... I couldn't bring myself to say it. There might be, but I don't want to waste time experimenting. I used this method a dozen times with mice, and it seemed to work well enough. I swallowed hard, even though there was no moisture left in my mouth. Okay. A look of relief passed over Jed's face. Thank you. I spent the next few minutes on autopilot. I called Marcus over to settle my tab, as well as Jed's, who, as it turned out, did not have any money. Marcus handed over my change, which I stuffed in my front pocket. And all the while, I pondered whether or not Jed had really walked into Tony's that night looking for a drink and someone to talk to, or if he was really in search of his own executioner. I held the front door open for him, who shuffled past me. A waxing moon played peekaboo behind thin wisps of clouds. The wind rattled through the trees surrounding the parking lot, bringing with it the pleasant smell of fresh snowfall and less than pleasant smell of dead Jed who walked beside me. Which car is yours? I'll pick it up tomorrow. I live just down the hill. I pointed to the steep decline behind Tony's, which led to the lake, but also a narrow trail that ended at the edge of my trailer park. Tomorrow seemed an eternity away. I couldn't think of waking up the next morning on my couch, feeling the all-too-familiar lethargy drinking five shitty beers brought with it but also feeling the warm sunlight beaming through the blinds on my face. I couldn't think about the woodworking project I had intended to finish tomorrow. I could only think of the task that lay ahead of me. The murder, but not really murder plot, Jed had forced upon me. We reached the lake's edge and took a right turn down to the path to my trailer. On any other night, the trail felt endless, seeming to stretch farther than an eighth of a mile had any right to be. In my drunken haze, I would imagine scenarios of being stalked by monsters lurking in the darkness surrounding me, watching me stumble home and waiting for just the right moment to strike. But as Jed and I walked side by side, I wished I was drunk. I wished I was blackout drunk. 
I wished I was so inebriated that the night wouldn't feel as real as it did. I also wished Jed would turn to me and tell me it was all a joke. And it was really just some coked-out homeless man who wanted to see how gullible I was and wanted to see just how far I'd go. What a joke. I shook my head. What a really funny fucking joke this was. A man walks into a bar, and he actually isn't a man. He's a corpse. And he talks another man into lopping his head off. Comedy gold. My weather-worn single-wide came into view. The motion-sensing light anchored above the porch flicked on as we approached. So, how are we doing this? Jed's casualness sickened me. On our walk back to my place, I'd figured out the best way to carry out the deed. I've got a 12-inch miter saw in my shed. The taste of sour beer and bile coated the back of my throat. I threw the shed door open, reached up, and pulled the chain to illuminate the small space with the single light bulb hanging from the ceiling. Along the right wall sat the table saw, fresh blade gleaming in the light. I gently moved the rocking chair I'd been building for a co-worker's pregnant wife to the side. My heart pounded against my ribs like a kick drum. Looks good. The life had left his voice as the gravity of the situation seemed to take hold. I turned to see him looking at my chair project, half assembled in the corner. Thanks. Well, let's get this over with. Jed removed his cap. A tangle of once blonde hair flopped onto his wrinkle-free face. Are you sure? I can't get you real help. I mean, you're so young. And I know I won't be able to live with myself knowing that I took so many good years from you. Aren't you afraid? Don't you don't you want those fuckers to pay for what they did? Don't you want to at least try to... Jed raised a hand, and I stopped. I've had weeks to come to terms with my situation... Mourn the loss of my life, Abner. And I have. There's lots of things I wanted to do and wished I'd done differently, but it's okay. Aren't you afraid? No. I'm not a religious man, but I feel like there's something better waiting for me. Like my soul is stuck in this stinking, rotting vessel, and I I just need to move on. There I go, being melodramatic again. I dropped my eyes to the radio perched on a low shelf along the back wall. I turned the dial until Abba's dancing queen rattled the windows. I shut the door sealing us into my workshop. So, 
so the neighbors don't hear. Smart. Jed looked to the table saw. Tears burned my eyes. Is there... Is there anyone who I should call to tell them about... Uh, to pick up your body? Jed smiled. I don't have anyone, Abner. Thank you, don't. He put a hand out. Thank you for listening and for doing this for me. You don't know how much you're helping. I took his hand in mine and felt bones grind together in my grip. Don't think of it. Jed walked to the saw and ran the pad of his index finger along its edge, giving it an approving nod. He then positioned himself beneath it, throat just inches from the blade. I stifled the urge to dry heave and walked up to the saw. This couldn't be happening. This could not be happening. I bought that saw for myself to use in my woodworking. My hobby. The only thing I truly loved. I put a hand on the handle. Jed had closed his eyes, looking more peaceful than he had all night. My fingers searched for the switch. A knock at the shed door, followed by a woman's voice, broke my concentration. Abner Smith! I responded without thinking. Yes? (gasps) Jesus Christ! It's her! It's Shaw! Do it! Do it now! Don't let her get to me! I flew to the door as it opened, moonlight slicing through the crack. I pulled it shut and threw the deadbolt in place. Don't listen to him! Don't do it! Fists pounded against the flimsy plastic door. My blood ran thick through my ears. I gripped the handle and flicked the switch. Just as it had hundreds of times before, the blade whirled in place, drowning out Abba's recital of the song's chorus and Dr. Shelby Shaw alike. I brought the blade down. It bucked beneath my hand as metal married with flesh. Jed screamed and I pushed down harder to make him stop. Chunks of stinking tissue splattered against the wall and into my face. The blade splintered bone. I closed my eyes. Jed's screams cut out all at once. An explosion blasted the door open. Tools fell from shelves, clattering to the ground. Jed's head tumbled from the workbench to the ground with a thud. I looked down, but was hit with a force like a battering ram. I fell backward, tripping over Jed's headless body and striking the wall hard. My hands flew instinctively to my stomach.
What have you done, you ignorant redneck? Shaw stepped into the light, shotgun in hand. Barrel still smoking like the nostrils of a bull. I pulled my hands away from my wound, not needing to look down at them to know they were soaked with my own blood. Ugh. Don't know what you were expecting to happen, Jed. You know your condition. Shaw had knelt down beside the head laying on the floor. I blinked away tears and stared in abject horror as his mouth breathless opened and closed. Eyelids fluttered over those dead blue eyes. On his face was a look of disbelief. I turned my attention to his body writhing in front of me, hands reaching and grappling at my boot. He's... he's not... Dead. Yes, I know. Unfortunately for him, the only way for that to happen is, as we've learned, complete incineration of the body. He's in here! Moments later, several figures wearing hazmat suits entered my workshop. A couple of them carried Jed's decapitated corpse into the night, his legs thrashing violently. Too violent and coordinated to be simple muscle spasms. Another stooped down and collected Jed's head. Just before he disappeared into an insulated cooler, I caught one last glimpse of Jed. Or rather, he caught one last glimpse of me. With those dull, dead eyes. Only, they didn't seem so lifeless anymore. They were very much alive. With a look of palpable betrayal, as if it were my fault his plan hadn't worked. His lips moved as if to speak, but no words came out. I leaned back, my vision blurred. The cooler's lid slammed shut, and the hazmat-clad individual exited the shed. Shaw leaned over me. A smile had crept over her lips. Her eyes glimmered like a cat who just found a mouse. It's so unfortunate that you got wrapped up in this situation. It's commendable that you tried to help Jed, but I'm afraid there's no help for him. Shaw pulled something from her coat pocket and turned me over. I willed my body to move away from her touch, to crawl away, but I hadn't the strength to. I didn't need her to tell me what she had in her hand. I sobbed harder as I felt a gloved hand massage the base of my skull. But I can help you. Blood and sawdust crept into my mouth. Please, don't. Shaw ignored my plea. I will give you a choice. You're going to die no matter what. It's only a matter of now or later. I can leave you be and let you bleed out now. Or you can help us finish our work. 
We're so close to a breakthrough. So, what do you say? Do you want to die? the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.